0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person.
1: If you could please stand, we'll begin in prayer. Let us pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise this night that again your Holy Spirit will lead us and guide us into all truth. We thank you for the Word of God which is coming to us to build us up and to strengthen us in the body, soul, mind, and spirit. Heavenly Father, we pray that this would be a time of great growth but also a time of great fellowship as we with each other would have opportunity to grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. We ask you now, Lord, to bless this time as we pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread as we trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
2: Thank you, Father. For those of you that do not know Father Randy Sly, he's a newly ordained priest, recent convert to the Catholic Church, and newly ordained priest, so we're very honored to have him here. I know there are a number of converts among us. There are also a number of people here tonight that are not Catholic. And you're here, I know, to find out about this strange teaching which the church has you are always more than welcome at the Institute of Catholic Culture. We got a call from somebody asking if it was okay if they came. I encourage you to come. What are you going to get at the Institute? You're going to get the Catholic faith, pure and unadulterated, unashamed, but presented also with love. You are more than welcome afterwards to ask questions in a respectful manner, and you will receive a respectful answer. And together, we will search out the truth of Jesus Christ and grow in his love. Our speaker, formerly a clergyman of the Episcopal Church and a convert to Catholicism, Father Bergman was ordained to the priesthood in 2007 through the pastoral provision of Pope John Paul II. In addition, Father Bergman serves as chaplain of the Anglican Youth Society, a Catholic organization dedicated to increasing awareness of the 2009 Apostolic Constitution of Pope Benedict XVI, Anglicanorum Cetibus. His articles have been published in Anglican Embers, This Rock, Catholic Men's Quarterly, and he has spoken across the United States about the work of the St. Thomas More Society. Father Bergman has spoken for the Institute before on the Lambeth Conference and also came this past Lent to preside over our Latare Vespers service. He and his wife, Christina, reside in Scranton, Pennsylvania with their seven young children. Please join me in welcoming back Father Eric Bergman.
3: Happy to be here. I'm going to uh, begin tonight uh, with a joke. And I hope that uh, you don't take it too seriously, keeping in mind how much I love my own (laughs) mother-in-law. Why did Peter deny Jesus? Right, because he cured his (laughs) mother-in-law. That's how we know that Peter was married, not only from St. Paul's letters, but also from the witness uh, that St. Matthew, St. Mark, and St. Luke give us in the Gospel story about how uh, literally Jesus healed, saved uh, Peter's mother-in-law from death. And so this is uh, not to say anything about my own mother-in-law. I love her very much, and she's been awesome. We've been married 16 years, only to say that uh, the married priesthood has been in the Catholic Church since the very beginning. Uh, The very first Holy Father was married. Thousands upon thousands of men are already married Catholic priests. And the reality is that the Catholic Church is made up of 22 churches. And there are two codes of canon law. One code governs the Western Church, and this is what we call the Latin Church. This is the church of which the majority of us here are probably members. But there are 21 other churches, and they are governed by the Eastern Code of Canon Law. There is a canon in the West that says only celibate men, that is, men that are not married, may be ordained to the priesthood. But in the Eastern Code of canon law, there is no such canon. And so uh, married men can be candidates for the priesthood. And if we look at the churches that have the most married priests, like the Maronite Church in Lebanon, or the Ukrainian Rite Church in the Ukraine, about half of the priests are married and about half of the priests are celibate. So what we're talking about when we talk about the married priesthood and the celibate priesthood is a discipline. There's a difference between a discipline, which is a way of living out the faith, and a doctrine, which is the faith itself. The question about the married priesthood or the celibate priesthood is not one of doctrine. As we know, as I began tonight, uh, St. Peter was, in fact, married, and he was also a priest. And so this is not even scriptural uh, in terms of the idea that only celibate men can be priests. It is simply a doctrine that has been enforced in the Western Church since at least, I mean, universally in the Western Church since the 12th century. Disciplines can be dispensed with. Doctrines can't. We can never have a law that changes our belief, for example, in the virgin birth. But we can have a law that says, for example, that men, only celibate men may be ordained. And then, because the Holy Father is the head of the church, he can, in certain instances, dispense with this law. And so what he gave me in 2007 is what is called a rescript. And that means that the law that says only celibate men may be ordained is set aside in order that, for pastoral reasons, this particular married man could be ordained. So Father Sly, who began tonight for us with a prayer, is also a married man who received a rescript, and again, that particular canon law was set aside, and uh, for pastoral reasons, Father Sly was ordained as well. There are more than 100 married priests of the Latin Church in this country, most of whom were ordained under the pastoral provision, and now we've had about 30 ordinations this year of uh, married men for the ordinariate, the personal ordinariate of the chair of St. Peter, of which I was the first priest to be incardinated. And uh, I was ordained, as I say, five years ago under the pastoral provision. But all the men that were ordained this year, that are now incarnated with me, received rescripts as well. So there are, as I say, about uh, 100 altogether, and this number will grow as the personal ordinariate of the chair of St. Peter sees more and more ordinations of former Anglican clergy. Since celibacy is a discipline of the West, my talk tonight is going to concern whether this discipline is wise for the West. Another talk would be needed to consider the wisdom of uh, the married priesthood discipline that we find so commonly in the East, and now within the personal ordinariate of the of St. Peter in the United States. The difficulty with addressing this question in the United States, whether the discipline of celibacy for priests in the Latin church is wise, the difficulty with addressing this question is the assumptions that people bring to the table because of our historical and our cultural baggage. The assumption that most people carry with them is that celibacy is a burden. Along with it come other assumptions. First, that priests would marry if they just were allowed, secondly, that celibacy is not normal and perhaps even unnatural, and third, as such, the sex scandal that the church continues to endure is the direct result of the celibacy requirement, and this is the most ludicrous and crazy assumption as if homosexual men interested in molesting teenage boys would not have done such things if they had been allowed to marry. It is a ridiculous assumption, and yet one we hear repeated over and over and over again in this country. My point here is not to focus on the upheaval that recently shook the Catholic Church and continues to negatively affect even this diocese. Rather, I desire to demonstrate with the obvious, that we must shed our cultural assumptions, which have been formed more by our environment than by our precious Catholic faith, if we are going to be able to consider the wisdom of the discipline of celibacy fairly and objectively. So what are the roots of our assumptions? Where did these assumptions originate? In order to understand America, one must know backwards and forwards English history. We cannot understand America unless we know the history of England. And our assumptions about celibacy are the result of our living in a nation that was founded by English Protestants. And when I say that, I'm not talking about the English Protestants who are really just businessmen who came to Jamestown in this state in 1607. I'm talking about the English Protestants who founded our nation beginning up in Massachusetts. I can say rather confidently as a former Anglican that English Protestantism was hostile to the discipline of clerical celibacy. After Henry VIII died in 1547, the requirement of priestly celibacy was immediately rescinded. Henry VIII, for all of his adultery and fornication, was actually an advocate of the celibate priesthood. Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, had been clandestinely married, but he sent his wife across the English Channel to the Netherlands for ten years while he enforced the law of Henry VIII that required that married priests be sentenced to death. So that Cranmer, who was married, actually signed the death warrants for priests who were also married. This same duplicitous fellow then penned the Book of Common Prayer, which has had an incredible influence over all the English-speaking world. Now, keep in mind, much of what Cranmer wrote was beautiful, and in fact, much of what Cranmer did was simply translate the missals that were in Latin in England at the time, and much of the liturgy that I use is actually Cranmerian English. Uh, The Book of Divine Worship is based upon the Book of Common Prayer, corrected in order that it is Catholic theologically. Uh, And this is I I brought with me. Uh, Much of what we read in here was translated by Cranmer, and in some cases even written by him. But Cranmer had a faulty theology when it came to the sacrament of holy matrimony. If we look at the 1549 Book of Common Prayer and the solemnization of holy matrimony, Cranmer wrote, duly considering the causes for which matrimony was ordained, he then gives us reasons why matrimony was ordained by God. He says, first, it was for the procreation of children, to which we can all agree. At least Catholics today can. Obviously, the secular culture, not in this state, but in the state north of me, uh, that is New York State, and south of me, that is Maryland. Uh, they have both legalized what is called uh, same-sex marriage, uh, which obviously is an oxymoron. But if we understand historically the understanding of marriage being for the procreation of children, this is something at least with Cranmer we can agree. But then he writes this. And this is in the Book of Common Prayer from 1549. Secondly, it was ordained for a remedy against sin and to avoid fornication that such persons as be married might live chastely in matrimony and keep themselves undefiled members of Christ's body. What are the implications, then, of Cranmarian theology with regard to the sacrament of holy matrimony? The first implication is that celibacy is impossible, and continence is nearly so. This is a Jansenist or fatalist, predestinarian idea about grace that actually denies the power of grace to give us the strength to do what God has called us to do, and also denies the power of grace to transform us. Now, Jansenism didn't come to the Catholic Church until the 1600s, but predestinarian Calvinist theology was very much present in the Anglican Church in the 1540s and 1550s especially. Uh, And really, Jansenism is just the Catholic version of Calvinism. Under this flawed theology, man or woman is the object for the fulfillment of carnal lust. According to Cranmer, it is holy to use one's spouse to avoid sin, seeing using one's spouse as the lesser of two evils, the first evil and the worst evil being fornication. But of course, my wife is not my concubine and I do not use her, commit an evil act, in order to accomplish a good that is avoiding fornication. Cranmer did not know the scriptures. And if we think in terms of using each other, there is no self-giving in that. It is taking, it is the consumption of the other. It is getting married for sex. And ultimately, it is not marital relations at all, but mutual masturbation. Jesus said, from the beginning, it was not so. He reminds us that marriage preceded sin. When he's asked about whether people can get divorced, he says, why can we get, why? well, Moses said we can get divorced, he says, for your hardness of heart, that is because of your sin. He let you get divorced, but from the beginning it was not so. This is in Matthew chapter 19. And if we look at Matthew 19, verses 10 to 12, we see that some people are actually called to celibacy. Jesus tells us that some men are called to chastity, celibacy for the kingdom. That is, he says, some men are born eunuchs, some men are made eunuchs by others, but some make themselves eunuchs. They don't literally castrate themselves. They simply set aside their sexual faculty in order that they might dedicate themselves entirely to the service of the kingdom of God. This saying, Jesus says, is given to some. It isn't for everybody, but it is given to some. And third, Cranmer forgot that celibacy is actually a gift from God. If we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7, Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own special gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And he was talking there about whether people could marry, and he said, of course you can marry. Now, I wish everybody were celibate like I am, but you have your gift, I have my gift. In other words, his conception of celibacy was not that it was a burden, but rather it was given to him by God as a precious gift. And so it is that those of us who are married, this is given to us by God as a precious gift as well. Cranmer's assumptions about grace and really the inefficacy of grace, Cranmer's assumptions prevented him from seeing the whole picture and resulted in his faulty interpretation of Scripture and the sacrament of holy matrimony. To see Celibacy, then, as a gift, is to admit the entire picture. The opposite of celibacy is not marriage. We tend to think in terms of celibacy being on one pole and marriage being on the other. But these two states are not polar opposites. They are rather fruits of the same tree, the tree of chastity. All Christians are called to chastity whether we are single or married. All of us are called to be chaste. Not all of us are called to be celibate, but all of us are called to be chaste. The fact that fornication, cohabitation, contraception, masturbation, and sodomy have all become culturally acceptable does not change the reality that they are all grave offenses against chastity. In other words, the sex that is Sexual relations, no sexual relations distinction is to posit a false dichotomy. What we have to ponder, what we have to ask ourselves, is whether we are chaste or unchaste. The opposite of marriage and celibacy, both, is unchastity. The opposite of marriage and celibacy, both, is unchastity. We see chastity within marriage as a gift. So we must see chastity outside marriage as a gift also. Why is chastity within marriage such a precious gift? Well, obviously, chastity within marriage issues in life. If within our marriages we have no adultery or contraception or pornography or self-abuse, then our spouses are more likely to conceive. They are more likely then to give of themselves to each other. They are more likely to serve as examples for their children to emulate. So I'm going to give you four reasons why celibacy is a gift. And I've structured this in such a way so that you could sort of regurgitate them immediately to anybody who tells you why doesn't the church just have all married priests? Celibacy is a gift because chastity outside marriage issues in life in the same way that chastity within marriage issues in life. When we don't sleep around, we obviously don't get diseases and die. When we don't fornicate, we do not conceive children out of wedlock, thereby depriving the vulnerable of two parents who love each other which we know sociological research has confirmed over the last 40 years, is the best environment for a child in which to be raised. This is the obvious part. But celibacy does not only not cause death. Celibacy also brings forth life. A life of celibacy for the kingdom of God, while it does not beget physical children, begets spiritual children. We are all a part of the patrimony of Jesus Christ. Everyone in this room, if you are a baptized Christian, whatever uh, your background, everybody in this room, if he is a baptized Christian, is the child of Jesus. Just as a marriage that is open to life is the fruit of sacrificial love, so a man who gives up a lifelong companion, a man who gives up sexual pleasure, and his own physical children for the sake of the kingdom of God, this man has offered to the church and to our Lord the sacrificial love that Jesus requires of each of us. St. Paul indicates in Ephesians chapter 5 that a man must be willing to lay down his life for his bride. So a priest must be willing to give up everything for the benefit of his bride, the church. The priest's bride is the church. The principal gift of the discipline of celibacy is how well the priest's sacrifice giving up the possibility of a wife and family. This reflects so well the willingness of Jesus to die for the church. The priest's willingness to die to self in this regard reflects beautifully Christ's own willingness to die for the church. The priest dies to himself, and he dies to his desires for your benefit. A celibate priest who embraces chastity invariably reflects this truth better in his life than does the most chaste married priest. I'm going to say that again. A celibate priest who embraces chastity invariably reflects this truth better in his life than does the most chaste married priest. celibate priest is a better reflection ultimately of Jesus Christ than I could ever be. Why? because I, as a married man, have a dual responsibility. My son Eric is with me today, my uh, older son. I have seven children, as uh, Deacon Sabatino said at the beginning, and my oldest son is here. On the one hand, I have to lay down my life for my wife Christina and my seven children. But on the other, I am called to lay down my life For you, these twin sacrificial obligations often come into conflict. In the hierarchy of loves, I am required that I tend to my family first, because the vows I made to Christina preceded the vows I made for you. That is, a married man can be ordained, but an ordained man cannot get married. Only marriage happens first, then ordination. There's no such thing as a widower, priest, or deacon getting married again. That doesn't happen. If my wife should predecease me, I will never get married again. So the hierarchy of loves requires that I tend to my family first because I made my vows to them first. Before I tend to your family, I have to tend to mine, when both must be cared for at the same time. So while the dedication of the celibate priest, is laid before for all to see. I, on the other hand, might not be available to lay down my life for you and yours. I promise you that if my wife is giving birth and you need the sacrament of the sick, I won't rush off to take care of you. I will be with my wife in the hospital room. That's simply the reality of the married priesthood. I might be occupied laying down my life for my wife and my children when you call to ask me to lay down my life for you. Which looks more like the love that Jesus had for the church? The love of the celibate priest, who is available all the time for you, or the love of the married priest? After all, Jesus himself was celibate. When he died on the cross, he did not have to worry about his wife and his children that he was leaving behind. He did have to worry about his mom, and he took care of that with John. But he did not have to worry about his wife, who would become a widow, or his children, who would become orphans. And so, this is the third great gift of celibacy. To be celibate is to have the radical freedom to serve. If the second principal gift of celibacy is that it reflects better the love of Jesus for the church. The third precious gift of celibacy is that it offers the celibate man the radical freedom to serve. I have a good friend named John Haas who was my professor when I was taking a course in Philadelphia. He runs the Catholic Medical Ethics Institute in Philadelphia. And John Haas was, before he became a Catholic, He has nine children. Before he became a Catholic, he was an Episcopal priest. And one night, he was called to the hospital, and there was a child who was dying, and he was actually quarantined because the uh, disease that he had was so infectious, so contagious. And so he came to this room where the boy was walled off, and they asked him to go in there and bless the child to administer to him, believe it or not, the Episcopal Church is a sacrament of the sick as well. He was asked to go in and do this. Now, ultimately, John Haas went in and did his duty. But before he went in, he hesitated. And he said to himself, if I were celibate, I wouldn't have to concern myself with whether it were safe for me to enter the quarantine. And as we know, a great... Priest of the Catholic Church, a great saint of the Catholic Church, St. Charles Borromeo, died doing precisely what John Haas initially was afraid to do. He died because he was administering to people, giving them the sacrament of the sick. He was only in his early 40s when he died from contracting the plague that the other sick whom he administered to had contracted themselves. Also, celibate priests are free to be uprooted and moved without trauma to a family. I live in Scranton uh, with my wife and children, and it's much more difficult. For five years I was a priest of the Diocese of Scranton. But the bishop kept me in Scranton for the entire five years I was his priest, before I was incarnated in the ordinariate. He kept me in Scranton because that's where my family is, that's where my children go to school, that's where my wife's friends are, and now relatives. His, her sister and her parents both live in Scranton now too. You can't simply ask a married man to get up and move from all of his ties in the same way that you can for a celibate man. Ultimately, the freedom to give one's very life is compromised to a certain extent by one who must concern himself with the needs and the future of his wife and children. If we think about all the missionary martyrs in the history of the Catholic Church, all the people who gave their lives in the mission fields in North and South America, all those Jesuits, well, none of them were married. All the people who died in Quebec, all the people who died in Mexico, none of them were married. They were able to offer themselves in this way because they didn't have to worry about a wife and child whom they might leave behind if they should be killed. I'm a missionary, of course, but I'm not likely to be sent to a hostile mission field, simply because my ordinary doesn't want to have seven children and a woman to support if I'm dead. The fourth great gift of the discipline of celibacy is the witness that a celibate man offers to a culture that is obsessed with the pleasures of the flesh. The celibate indicates to all of us that continence is possible. And if we look at the percentage of the men who actually got into trouble during the sex scandal that began to be exposed, uh, really writ large, in 2002, it's less than 5%, well less than 5% actually. That's less than 1 in 20 of the priests actually got into trouble. So we're talking about 19 of 20 priests demonstrating to us that continence is possible. 19 of 20. We concentrate on that 1 in 20, but 19 in 20 are faithful to their... Promise to live a celibate life. The celibate shows that his life is not the sum total of human existence. He has dedicated himself to begetting spiritual progeny, denying himself many pleasures of this world to do so, all the while looking forward to the reward to come. He has a family. He has this earthly family, of course, but he's also got a heavenly family with whom he will live forever. Every priest that begets spiritual children will have his children with him for all eternity. And if we think about the sort of stereotype about the preacher's kid, right? How many preachers are going to have kids who aren't with them in heaven? The great benefit of celibacy, the great benefits, lead me to this conclusion. The discipline of celibacy is a beautiful gift that should not be abandoned in the Latin Church. That is, I have come to the same conclusion in contemplating this mystery that at least one of the bishops of the Eastern Churches has reached. In 2005, at the Synod of Bishops, Cardinal Nasrallah Pierre Saphir said, Celibacy is the most precious gem and the treasure of the Catholic Church. And this is a man saying this who has half-married priests, half celibate priests. He's a Maronite cardinal. Celibacy is the most precious gem in the treasure of the Catholic Church. So no doubt you have two questions. First, why should exceptions to this discipline be made then for people like you? The very simple answer is that the unity of the church is more important than uniformity of praxis with regard to discipline. The unity in doctrine is more important than unity of discipline. If the ordination of a, former married, of a married former Anglican will reconcile his people to the church, then it should be done. And it's being done on an almost weekly basis this year. This is the wisdom of our late Holy Father, Blessed John Paul II, who issued the pastoral provision in 1980, while at the same time maintaining the Church's ancient tradition of celibacy. And then this precious gift that John Paul offered to the ecumenical movement in terms of offering the reunion of Christians under the Holy See, well, this was reaffirmed by Pope Benedict XVI and Anglicanum Cheribus, which is the Apostolic Constitution which allowed for the creation of the personal ordinariates for former Anglicans. And now there are three, one in Australia, one in England, and one here in the United States. Thus I hope that hundreds more married men will be ordained. And I say that with all sincerity. If more married men are being ordained in the Latin Church, that means that more Catholics are being made. More people are being reconciled to Holy Mother Church as their married pastor comes into the church, leads them into the church, and an exception is made for him to the discipline that all other Latin priests must observe. The second question, what then will solve the vocations crisis if not married priests? What will solve the vocations crisis in the Catholic Church is when married men begin to take seriously their obligations as faithful Catholics. When married men begin to act like fathers, begin to be the men God has called them to be, the vocation's crisis will be solved. We will let be born the men God is calling to the priesthood. One more children will be born because contraceptive use and sterilizations will cease. There's 10 million women on the pill in this country right now. 10 million women who are using the birth control pill right now. And there are more people who are sterilized. Sterilization is the most common form of contraception. People actually mutilate themselves to prevent themselves from having children. Children that could indeed be the priests God is calling to serve his church. When I was preaching in in, uh, North Scranton before we bought our church in North Scranton this year, uh, five years ago I was preaching there, and I preached a sermon about how evil uh, contraception is on uh, Respect Life Sunday. And I got a call from the vicar for clergy, and he said, Father, did you uh, tell some lady that she needed to have more kids? And I said, no, I told all the ladies they needed to have more kids. (laughs) And he said, well, I know what you're talking about because I was in South Scranton at a meeting at a church that was going to be closed. And a person stood up and said, Father, what do we need you being vicar for clergy? You're in the chancery all day long. They could take you out of the chancery, assign you to a parish. That's one less parish that has to close. So Father Rich Locke said, how many children do you have? Well, the person didn't like that answer. But as it turned out, nobody in the room had more than two children. He said, why is your church closing? Because you didn't have the children produce the priest who would have kept this church open. He said it right to their faces. The man who is married and lives a chaste life, his example of sacrifice will lead his sons to follow his example of self-emptying love, which is what both marriage and the priesthood require. Because so many married men are unwilling to embrace the responsibilities of married life, 95% of Catholic couples in this country contracept at one time in their marriage. That doesn't mean 95% of Catholic couples are contracepting right now. It means that at one point in their marriage, about 95% of Catholic couples contracept. Because of this reality, these men are not fit to take on the second great sacrifice that is required of a priest of the Church. They are simply not fit. It is no coincidence that those who agitate for married priests also want contraception. They also want contraception to be approved by the Holy See. In neither case, in neither case, do they believe that self-control is possible, that the control of one's passions is possible. You know what G.K. Chesterton said about birth control, right? No births and no control. I believe, therefore, that at this point in our history, we need celibacy properly understood more than we ever have. Here in the West, at this time in our history, the witness of celibacy is the antidote to the poison of a hypersexed culture. And finally, why there are excellent arguments to be made for why the Eastern churches have maintained the married clergy. I have not elaborated upon them because the culture in which we live is not Eastern. We live in Western culture, as I said, one that was been formed by our founders who were all English Protestants. Arguments in favor of a married priesthood in the West must be derived They must originate in Western culture. It is not the easiest thing in the world to take a practice from one part of the world and introduce it into another, assuming that it will automatically work. We have to be careful what we wish for. We could trade one set of problems for another if we were to take this beautiful Eastern discipline and try and force it upon our brothers in the West. Americans ultimately are a black and white lot. We have difficulty grasping that two things that aren't the same can both be right. This is a legacy of Puritanism, and it was reflected most starkly in our country with prohibition. What kind of a nation tries to outlaw alcohol? <laughs> a nation that is starkly black and white, so that if we introduced the married priesthood in this country, within a generation, all the priests would be married. We would swing the pendulum all the way the other way. The legacy of Puritanism. And this either-or mentality is Western. It is not Eastern. This leads me then to conclude with a paradox. And it is a paradox that I hope my presence with you and my talk have made clear. The very men in the West who would make suitable married priests are the same men who understand, who treasure and who endorse the value of of the discipline of celibacy. Only those married men who appreciate and hold up the willful sacrifice of their celibate brother priests are worthy of the office to which they have been ordained. And those of us who are married priests, this reality is reflected in the size of our families. Now, I'm not telling you to toot my own horn, I'm saying this, of course, because it's true. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Father Bergman. I know you have many questions uh, for Father, and so we are going to have a short question answer for those that can stay around. Questions.
0: Um, I've read several articles over the years about why not uh, married Catholic priests, Western Catholic priests, and they've brought up the fact also that the divorce rate among Christian ministers is almost as high as in the secular world. Have you ever read that?
3: that? That is true. In fact, the highest divorce rate among professionals, if you want to find the highest divorce rate among married professionals, it's married clergy couples if we see, have a, a lady clergywoman and a and a man clergyman, uh, when they're married to each other, they have the highest divorce rate of any, of all professional people. Now, remember this, that there is necessarily, uh, when a woman becomes, and uh, the Protestants can do anything they want, but when a woman becomes a clergywoman, uh, there's a necessary denial of her role as a mother. She was made by God to be a mother. Whether she actually has children or not, she was made by God to be a mother. Just as every man was made by God to be a father. And what very often is happening in these couples, these married clergy couples, is contraceptive. So they are in competition with each other. So naturally there's going to be a marital breakdown. If one sees his spouse as the enemy or the potential problem, the potential frustration of one's ultimate aspirations, well how can you have a union like that? we are called to complement each other, not be in competition with one another. And this is the greatest thing, the greatest problem with contraception, is that people call it protection, right? We protect ourselves from our enemies. I mean, September 11th is two days, right? The anniversary of September 11th, we need protection from those people. We don't need protection from our spouse. It's insanity. The reason they divorce is because they have competition in the bedroom. If you have competition in the bedroom, you're on a marital breakdown.
1: And you're presuppositions, cultural biases and all. Uh, you mentioned England and Protestantism. Right. I can grok that because I had a couple of ancestors that came over on the Mayflower. My wife cannot. Her ancestors came over two generations before from Spain to Mexico and then up to this country. Right. How do they grok your presupposition? The
3: culture of uh, Mexico and Quebec, Those. Uh, two places that had massive immigration of Catholics around the same time uh, that Protestants were flooding into the sandwich between them. Their culture has affected ours actually uh, very little in terms of its development. The trajectory of American culture has been not subjugation to authority but the exaltation of the individual and the desire of the individual to exert his will on others. The other thing that characterizes our culture, which does not characterize either Spanish or French culture, is this uh, willingness to create a new the Garden of Eden somewhere else. Right? What did the pilgrims come here to do? They were going to create a city on a hill. So every time something goes bad in America, what do we do? We abandon it and we leave. I'm only 41 years old, but I can remember the white flight when all the white people left the cities. Where else does that happen? That doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. You abandon your land, your patrimony, and go start somewhere else? That is unique to America. And it's ultimately very destructive because what are we called to do as Christians? We're called to transform the place that we are. The grace of God will transform the place we are in the same way that we can be transformed by God's grace. But if you're a Calvinist and you're predestinarian and you think that there's either the people who are saved and the people that are reprobate, well then, just leave them behind. Leave them behind and go start the Garden of Eden somewhere else. Create the city on a hill somewhere else. So what did we do? We made it from Jamestown in 1607 to San Francisco in 1849. That's amazing, because that's American culture. Just keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, go out here. I, when I, I went to JMU in uh, Harrisonburg, Virginia, as I said, and I graduated in 91. And a lot of places I drove through today were farms when I was going to school. I went back and forth to uh, DC all the time because my roommate's girlfriend and ultimately fiance and then wife went to Georgetown. And nobody lived in Loudoun County. I mean, there were a few people there, of course. But nobody lived in Loudoun County in 1990. And now the place is packed. And that's not just because of the growth of the bureaucracy in this country. It also has to do with people leaving where they are and going and starting a new somewhere else. The Christian orientation is not to do that. The Christian orientation, the Catholic orientation, is to transform where we already are. Rely upon the grace of God to transform where we are. Not only us, but the surrounding area.
1: Do you give a definition as John Paul II would for a sexually integrated individual, one? And two, what percentage of priests do you think are in fact sexually integrated? True.
3: Uh, I'll answer this with an illustration, okay? I was uh, ordained, as I said, in April 2007, and immediately after. I was ordained, we had the convocation of priests, and that is when all the priests of the diocese get together, and they are taught by an instructor who's brought usually from outside, and they have occasion to get together with one another and and socialize and and, uh, pray together and say mass together, and it's almost like a retreat, but all the priests are there together. And as I walked into my very first meal with my brother priest, having been ordained about a week, a man stood up in the middle of all my brother priests and said, Here comes the man who has the best of both worlds. And they all laughed. And I was crushed. So I went to see, at the time, my ordinary bishop, uh, Joseph Martino. And I said to him what had happened. And he said, don't worry, Eric, that those men talk to you like your wife is your concubine. Because they treat their parishes like it's their concubine. And what he was saying was that the man is to exist for his wife. Exist to serve his wife. And the same way is true with a priest, He is to exist to serve his parish. But too often this has turned around. Men think the wife was made to serve him. That she exists to serve him. And so the priests have the wrong orientation as well. and They think that the parish is there to serve them. And we have a long history in American Catholicism of men becoming a pastor and when this is when they would have two or three assistants and then not working anymore. Right? Because <laughs> then they could lead the easy life. They go golfing, raise money, socialize, and all the hospital visitation, all the hard work was done by the underlings who were newly ordained. Until they became pastors, and then they stopped working too. This wasn't universal, but it was common enough that if you talk to people who were raised in the uh, 30s, 40s, and 50s, they remember pastors who did nothing except socialize. And this is reflective of uh, selfish orientation. So if one imagines that the parish exists for himself, he's never going to be sexually integrated because he does not conceive of himself as a father. Why did John Paul and then Benedict both reaffirm that homosexual people with deep-seated homosexual tendencies should not be ordained to the priesthood? Why? Because they cannot conceive of themselves as being fathers. A priest who is true to his vocation Conceives of himself as a father, a provider, and a protector. And if what you're concerned about is consuming, well, then you can't be a father. You're not a father. I don't know the percentage. I know there's a lot out there. And we've reaped the whirlwind because of their misdeeds over the last 50 years. But the new vocations, the guys that are being ordained to the priesthood today, almost to a man, uh, know what it means to be a father and try to live out their vocation as fathers.
0: In the Anglican Rite Ordinariate in which you're cardinated, is the vision that all men who are ordained into this Ordinariate will be married? Or is it the first couple of generations and then a hundred years from now the priests coming into the Ordinariate, the Anglican Use Ordinariate, will be celibate?
2: How does that
3: work? That's right. Um, right, uh, For one thing, a number of the men ordained are celibate. Father Jason Catania, he's in the city of Baltimore, and he's a celibate priest, and he was ordained in the ordinariate this year. So we have celibate men in the ordinariate. But the discipline in the West is celibacy, and though our tradition in the last 500 years has been uh, married priesthood, the tradition in the West is a celibate priesthood. And so this is what will ultimately become the norm in the ordinariate over the generations. But for now, as the first generation comes in, the vast majority of Anglican clergy are married. And so naturally, the vast majority of the ordinary clergy are going to be married. But in generations hence, we'll see fewer and fewer. Unless we do our job and keep making converts and keep getting Anglicans from all over the world to become Catholic, then we'll have loads of married priests. It'll be great. Because it'll indicate that we're make, that we're doing our job and uh, we haven't become complacent. Remember, we want to see hundreds of married priests because that means there's converts being made. And for every, priest, every married priest ordained, he represents at least a few dozen converts. And this is an incredible blessing to the church.
0: Father, I've heard, I, I was interested in, you know, the vocations crisis, what will resolve it and everything, and that resonated well with me. But I've been hearing more and more that marriage rates are declining themselves, which seems to be just you know, like the vocations to the priesthood first and to the sisters, to, and then even accepting that responsibility, the marriage, you know, commitment to that's marriage. Right. Can you comment on?
3: Absolutely. The, the, uh, one of the things that's interesting, until this year we were members of St. Paul's Parish, before we were erected as a parish, uh, Mission Parish of the Ordinariate, we were members of St. Paul's Parish in, in uh, Green Ridge section of Scranton. And this is a very wealthy Catholic area almost all Catholics, Scranton is 75% Catholic, and it has about 3,000 families in this particular parish in the Green Ridge section of the city of Scranton. And guess how many marriages they had in the year 2011? Eleven. They aren't getting married. Uh, more than 50% of children born in the city of Scranton, and this is a 75% Catholic city, more than 50% of children born in the city of Scranton are born out of wedlock. Urban rates are much higher than suburban rates, but the problem of illegitimate parents is really great. There's no such thing as an illegitimate child. But the problem of uh, parents who won't marry each other is great. What it has to do with is this same thing that's harmed uh, the vocations in this country, the contraceptive mentality that uh, leads us to treat sex as if it were created merely for pleasure, also is affecting marriage because people are coupling, they're copulating, but they aren't having marital relations. They are not offering themselves entirely to one another. And so if in the first thing they do, because you know the average, how quickly people have sexual relations now when they go on dates? Two dates. One of the first things they do is copulate. So if they are not offering themselves uh, to each other fully in that way, they never even offer themselves the time to get to know one another so they can offer themselves to each other. Well, then that's going to play itself out over the course of their courtship and then the course of their married life, if they even bother to get married. So it has to do with putting the cart before the horse and uh, really uh, not having a holistic view of what it means to be a human person.
2: Thank you very much, Father.
0: Pray for us.